welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over the past few weeks, as part of our summer series, we have been looking at big messages from little books where we have taken some of the smallest books of the, the Bible and have discovered that despite the fact that they are small in regards to chapter and regards to verse, they have big messages. And in fact, they have a lot to say to us today. Over the four weeks that we have been doing these, we have looked at Philemon, we have looked at Haggai, we have looked at 2 John, and tonight we're going to conclude by looking at Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and it begins with the heading identifying the prophecy as the vision of Obadiah and attributing the pronouncement to the Lord God himself. That's a pretty impressive entrance, isn't it, to make in that sense. This is the word of the Lord. This is God that is saying these words. Little is known about the author apart from the fact that his name means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. But to further muddy the waters around the authorship, there are 10 Obadiahs in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there are 10 different people that have this name. So we really don't know much about who he is or what he does or anything really about him. The book itself, for purposes tonight, others can divide it differently, it falls into two major sections. The first is verses 1 to 14. It addresses the nation of Edom, and it announces her inevitable fall and destruction from her position of pride and arrogance and false security, God will bring her down. The land and the people will be pillaged, they will be judged, they will be plundered, and destruction will be complete. Why? We will discover in a few moments. The second section of the prophecy, which is verses 15 to 21, considers the, the day of the Lord. This time will be a time of retribution, of reaping what has been sowed, sown. For Edom, there is the pronouncement of doom. But for Judah, the people of God, there is the promise of deliverance. Edom will be judged severely, but the people of God will experience blessing and will be restored to their land. All this, all this information is fine, but to really to begin to grasp the message of Obadiah, geography history, and context are, are crucial. We say this every time, but especially in regards to this message. So let's start with geography. We have here, if you can see it, maybe if I look this way, it'll be better. <coughs> this is present-day Israel and Palestine. We see Jerusalem, and there's the, the kingdom. Or the people of Israel had now been divided, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. But the kingdom of Edom is down there below uh, the Dead Sea, and uh, towards Egypt. That is the geography of the people. The, the tribes, the Arab tribes to the, to the east over there would have been nomads, but they would have tried to attack Edom, but it was a pretty secure country. The history is very important. Edom, or the Edomites, were the descendants of the biblical Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob. What set the Edomites apart, and I think this is why they probably had a more severe judgment than anything else, what set them apart from the other enemies of the nation of Israel, say like the Philistines or say the Egyptians, 
was that they were blood brothers with the people of Israel. The Edomites were blood brothers of the Israelite people. But the relationship between Israel and Edom was marked by hatred and bitterness and animosity throughout the whole Old Testament period. It's a long and complicated story, and here is an incredibly brief summary. <laughs> the rivalry between these two nations, if you know your Old Testament, this will be well known to you. The rivalry between these two nations had begun more than a thousand years earlier when the birth of twins happened, Jacob and Esau. In fact, I should say Esau and Jacob because he was the eldest. Genesis 25 to 27. These twins fought and wrestled each other from the moment that they were conceived. The brothers were raised and grew up in an environment of favoritism and deception that was fostered by their parents. Esau, the firstborn, became an incredibly skillful hunter. He was an earthly man who lusted after the things of the world. Jacob, however, on the other hand, was a quiet man, but was a schemer and a plotter, and he always looked to benefit himself or to get the advantage. Jacob lived up to his name, which means supplanter or deceiver, and he tricked his brother into selling his inheritance rights as the eldest son for a single meal. To satisfy his immediate desire, Esau sold his rights to honor and spiritual power for a mere meal. Jacob's trickery did not end there, and assisted by his mother, his deceitfulness reached its climax. He tricked his own father, a blind old man, into bestowing upon himself the blessing his father intended to give to Esau, his brother. When Esau discovered his brother's deception, his anger boiled over and completely broke out and turned from bitterness to hatred. And when he says these words, they really do sum up what he says. Esau said in his heart, the days of my father are at hand, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So that really sets the historical context of, of, of the relationship between these guys. And time and time again, Scripture records for us national antagonism between the Edomites, the children or the descendants of Esau, and the tribes of Jacob, and especially the tribe of Judah, was not good at all. Esau's anger hundreds of years later, continued to burn unquenched, and accordingly, his bitterness had taken root and polluted the generations that came. This is an incredibly sad story of a family that reaps and sows bitterness and hatred. And that, that is, it, shards, it throws a long shadow all over the history, but also over this book. Their attitude to the nation of Judah when they were invaded was incredible. It was as if they stood and looked across the garden fence and were glad, probably delighted, to see their old relatives in trouble and that they were being devastated. Edom and Israel were to each other what Esau and Jacob were to each other, brothers who were not good to each other, brothers who hated each other, and brothers who did not live in peace at all. Edom's sins against Israel and pride against God ended up in their destruction. God absolutely destroys them for what they did and how they lived. So just before we read the book that is Obadiah, two further things to help us with the context. The date of this prophecy against Edom 
is widely to be believed to be 587 to 586 BC. 587 to 586 BC. The period in which Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and the children of Judah were to go into exile. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the, the Bible, and uh, I sometimes want to know what else was happening at that time, because I sometimes want to put some context into the world. So what was happening in the wider world at that time was, well, within 20 years either side of this date, the first lighthouse had been built in Egypt. For those of you who are mathematical, Pythagoras was born at this time. Bless him. The founder, <laughs> the founder of Buddhism had just been born, and I think, I'll need to check, I think it was in Nepal. The Iron Age was at its peak in northern Europe. The hanging gardens of Babylon were being built, and you're not going to believe this. In this decade, the first plastic surgery was carried out. The first plastic surgery ever. It's not hard to believe. And it was done on the nose. Don't have any photographs. Anyway. And the second thing that we need to note is that the country of Edom was extraordinarily well defended. It was a well defended country, incredibly defended and defined by the rocks of creation. And this meant that it was a hard country and the cities were hard to attack and it was really, really difficult to get into Edom. It was the, the rocks and the formation were simply unique and absolutely beautiful. They were impregnable to enemies. You see from a couple of pictures that we have here that the, the cities were built into the rocks. People lived in those. Those were the, the front, and they were, sit, they were carved out of the rocks. That's what I should be saying. It was virtually impossible to attack this city or the cities of Edom. There was one weakness that they had. It was a 3.5-kilometer opening at the top of the rocks, but they could easily defend that if they had enough people. If you remember the classic film, Indiana Jones and the, and the Last Crusade, where Sean Connery plays Indy's father, he had the lifelong um, obsession with the, the Holy Grail. And the quest to find the sacred relic leads them to the ruins of the lost city, and this is the, the area that we're talking about. And we see that they have to travel on horseback through winding, narrow passages. And this crevice was just so easy for them to defend. The city that we're about to see the clip of is the rock city of Petra, one of the major cities of biblical Edomites. And this is the last 90 seconds of that Indiana Jones. And I just want you to see the way that they get out of the city, see the walls and everything. It's quite a funny clip if you know the film. But if you see them riding out, this is Edom. This is the land of the Edomites that was so easy to defend. Also, it gives us an excuse to show the end of the film. It gives you also some insight into uh, the land. It gives you an insight into how they could so easily defend the city <clears throat> because that was what it was like then and what it is like now. <clears throat> Those incredible rocks on the side protecting it. So we come to <clears throat> Obadiah and we're going to read it. It's only something like 21 verses, so I'm going to read it to us all. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, 
You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set amongst the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stand aloof, on the day a strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shepsalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviour shall, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. <coughs> there are two primary lessons that I just want to highlight tonight very quickly that come out of this book. First of all, God opposes the proud, and he will bring them down. Verses 3 and 4 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The citizens of Edom were a proud and arrogant people. They were hidden in high places, living in cities as we've seen cut into the rocks, and they felt safe and secure, confident in their own strength and their own opinion. But God says, I will bring you down. 
and he did. For in their minds, they truly believed that they were superior to others, and especially their blood brothers, the Israelites. And in this case, it was because of geographical superiority. But as we know, superiority and pride comes in many, many different ways. It is interesting to know that four times in this short book, God refers to the mountain of Esau. It's as if they used to think of themselves high and lifted up and better than anyone else. They looked down. They said, who will bring me down to the ground? And the answer in their minds was they were superior to others that nobody would bring them down. And you know, we can have hearts and postures that make us believe that we are right and that we know that what we're doing is correct. And God says, as he says to the Edomites, if we live lives that are arrogant and proud and superior, then he will oppose us. The Edomites paid the price. With all integrity, it is impossible to look at a book such as Obadiah, identify its core messages, in this case, one being pride, and not take a few uncomfortable moments and examine where do we stand in the light of the fact is of the whole issue of pride. Pride is what others struggle with. Pride is what other people have. Arrogance is what other people struggle with. I don't struggle with that because I actually do know what is right. Because my opinion really is well worth listening to. And, um, and in my opinion, it should be listened to. And of course, I know what is right. It's other people who have pride and arrogance. You know, the Bible is pretty unequivocal in what it says about pride. It's these, it says in Proverbs 6.16, it says, These six things the Lord hates, yet seven are an abomination to him. And the first one on that list is a proud look. C.S. Lewis. You can't go through a message at Gateway without quoting C.S. Lewis. But we did this morning. We did. But he says this, this incredibly powerful few words. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Very powerful, powerful words. Pride will kill us. And if we don't identify it for what it is, then we have some challenges. One lady writer says this very, very well. Fabian Harford says these words. For me, pride infects my eyesight and can make me have distorted vision, for it can cause me to view myself through, the lens, through a lens that colors and distorts the reality of my heart and attitude. Pride will paint even the ugliest of our sins as beautiful and even commendable, and perhaps a quality that is desirable. You know, there's a couple of things that I just want to be very honest with you and share some of the things that I watch for in my own life. 
There are a couple of things that I have as trigger points that worry me when they happen. When the following couple of things happen in my life, I just sort of, I stop and I say to God, why did I think that? Or why was I of that opinion? And there are two things. And the first one is a harsh spirit. Sometimes I have to be really careful that I can, I can say, well, I'm tired or out of sorts or I'm busy. But sometimes I have this, it's just plain sin. And when I have a harsh spirit, when I find myself showing irritation or frustration or becoming judgmental towards someone or something that is being said or done, it sets alarm bells off in my mind. You know, as I said, I can say that I'm tired or I'm out of sorts, or I'm not feeling 100%. But, you know, I think for me it's because maybe something is... I'm being harsh about it because it's not being done the way that I like it to be done. And of course, I, I do know how things should be done. The second one is when I become incredibly defensive about something. I always get nervous when I get defensive about stuff. And especially when it's somewhat irrelevant. You see, and I think both of these two challenges, both of these two things revolve around probably the things that are not being done my way. And so therefore, that can't be right. Never has anyone come to me and said, Chris, I struggle with pride. I've never had anybody come to me and say, I've studied, I'm struggling with pride. Over 35 years as a pastor, not one person has said that to me. This lady, again, Fabian Harford, quoting Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher revivalist on the subject of pride, highlights the following telltale signs of giving room to pride where we think that we have a, a better opinion or, than other people or we think more highly of ourselves. And it's hidden, it's insipid, it's all those things. But here are the things that Jonathan Edwards talks about. When we are regularly fault-finding, well, I want to help people. Defensiveness, which I've already said. Desperate for attention. Convinced that one is always right. A real telltale signs. It's interesting to note that when one researches biblical scholars throughout history in regard to their thoughts around pride, they all virtually mention every single one of these traits. Not sure where we stand in regard to these, but it is clear that, the, uh, that God saw the Edomites as an arrogant and proud nation, untouchable in their mountainous retreat, looking down on their brothers, suffering, and he decided to judge them. The second aspect that God wanted the Edomites to learn is found in verse 15, and it is said, as you have done, it shall be done to you. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Be not deceived, Galatians says, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that so also shall he reap. God, through Obadiah, Paul, to the New Testament church is reminding the people of a very simple principle. You reap what you sow. It's not karma. It's not what goes around, comes around. It is the undeniable principle of each of every one of our lives. What we sow, we will reap. The principle of sowing and reaping is neither good nor bad. What you sow, what you reap is neither good nor bad. It is just that. It is a principle. It can be used for positive things, kindness, generosity, being gracious to, be, to people, or if abused, there are consequences. This is the reality of the principle, and we have, if I can put it like this, 
an incredible point of leverage in our Christian walk. You can leverage it for good, or you can leverage for things that are not good. And I think that's an incredible challenge that we need to hear perhaps more regularly is that we do have a say, real, real say, in what's going to happen in our futures in those small aspects of our life. We have that choice, that opportunity in front of us. Perhaps daily we have a choice to sow and know what we will reap. I, I rem- remember, good friend, about, for about 10 years before we came out here, I used to spend uh, maybe a morning once a month with, a, with an older guy, and uh, he used to mentor me, and uh, he used to ask me different questions, and he used to tell me off and challenge me and do all those things. And he always used to talk to me about, you'll reap what you sow. Sow well, and you will reap well. And he told, told me this probably every month for 10 years <laughs> as part of who he was, because he lived that out. And one of the words that he said to me, or one of the phrases that he said to me, Chris, in life, stay sweet. Stay sweet. And generally I have. I can't say that I've always stayed sweet, but generally I have. But perhaps not as much as he would have liked. He said that when people get mad with you, and they did, stay sweet. When people don't like what you do or what you say, stay sweet. If people just get generally peed off with you, stay sweet. In other words, irrespective of how other people are to you, don't get mad, don't get grumpy, don't get peeved, stay sweet. Sow something that will reap something for your future. Come against it in an opposing spirit. And it's a daily battle or a weekly battle, and it's a monthly battle to stay sweet when people perhaps don't agree with you. Often it can be tricky talking about, as you have done, it shall be done to you, to Christians, because for many of us, we think because we are saved and redeemed, that we have this spiritual get-out-of-jail card. Well, I have been forgiven, yes, which is absolutely true. One's sins have been dealt with, but God says, after that, let's talk about your life. Let's talk about your actions. Let's talk about your attitudes. The Edomites were soon to get to know this truth, that they were going to reap what they had sown towards God's people. Paul is saying in Galatians, what we really all know intuitively, that life is connected. As I said, it's not destiny, it is a biblical principle in action. Where we are today, (coughs) where we are today in our walk as Christians before God is a result of decisions that we have made in the past. Yes, we've come to know Christ, but daily decisions that we have made to sow good stuff or bad stuff. And where we will be tomorrow is connected to what we did yesterday and what we will do today. There is a relationship between our actions and what we can expect in the days and months that lie ahead. For the most part, sowing and reaping don't come swiftly. And this often throws us off kilter, for we, of the 21st century, we like instant. We like things to come back straight away. Everything is now. But with reaping and sowing, the biblical principle, there is a delayed element involved. More than likely, we go about our lives storing up 
things that don't look like much on a daily basis, but over time, the accumulation is outstanding. A little deceit there, a little fib over there, a sarcastic comment under our breath, coupled perhaps with a small addiction to pornography over there, or that extra second or two, maybe looking at that person's body as they walk past us, or a meager, small portion of jealousy, or greed, or gossip. Well, nobody else hears it, but you're sowing into the heavenlies. You will reap that back. On a one-time basis, all those things may seem manageable, but these things never remain as one-off. So as the weight of days add up, the sheer tonnage comes down on our unsuspecting lives, and we reap something that we once seemingly thought was inconsequential and was never going to happen to us. If I'd had a dollar for every time people had said to me, I never thought that was going to happen to me. I say to them, well, let's go back a few years. The answer, this answers the question of the failed marriage of 25 years or the affair that no one saw coming or the bitter and irredeemable rebellion of a young person that brings separation from their parents. Slow and steady patterns brought about by the sowing of resentment, unforgiveness, harsh words that have cut deep and have so much pain that they have built a maze of darkness that finally reaps the seeds of pain and hurt. It doesn't happen in an instant. It is a slow cooker, as it were, and the steady admission just happens, and we don't even perceive it. And it comes out of nowhere, and it hits us, but it's been building, it's been waiting, it's been storing, and it will hit us because there is this irrefutable principle of what you sow you will reap. The flip side is also true. When we live and serve in obscurity, and we just serve for serving's sake, when we serve with love and show kindness in the simple things, the anonymous cup of water, a deep but meaningful prayer when no one else knows about it, an act of selflessness, being quick to forgive, to allow a comment to go over our head and not to pierce our heart, to have a heart of worship and the, the ability to resist the temptation, they will bring a positive result of the kingdom of God. We will reap what we have sown in those areas. And that when we resist temptation the first time, we will find it a little bit easier, perhaps the second time. What we did out of kindness today will bring back kindness to do it. We reap what we sow. So how do we land all this? How do we make this relevant to where we are today? From the perspective of Obadiah and the Edomites, the history books tell us that Edom did okay for perhaps another hundred years after this final warning from God's prophet. Then during the fifth century BC, the Edomites were overwhelmed by their fellow Arab nations and they were decimated, completely decimated. God fulfilled his word. So what do we do with this knowledge? How, what can we learn from Obadiah? Firstly, we've already said it, and James says it in his epistle, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. I just think God loves it when people say, I am so sorry. Lord, come and speak to me. I've messed up. God opposes the proud 
and gives grace to the humble. So this is a great place to start. We all need to have his favor. We all need to have his grace. And, and if we are to get help, we need to find ourselves some honest people that will speak into our situation. Let us have a look at the word and allow his Holy Spirit to, to permeate our thinking and allow the mirror of his word to speak into the depths of our heart and our attitudes and to get some good friends who will speak truth. Because you know something, can I just put it like this? Nobody likes an arrogant twit. How many, how many like arrogant twits? Nobody does. You know, they think, oh man, that person, you know, you've all said it. Perhaps we've all said it. Check our hearts. Check why we do what we do. Check why we say what we do and get people around us. Secondly, as you have done, so it will be done to you. Sowing and reaping. Is there any area of our lives, our family, our money, our dating, our relationships, our professional lives in which we are not where we want to be? You know, there's a good chance we are there because we have sown and reaped ourselves there in some capacity. In some places it's obvious, perhaps in others it isn't. Again, talk to someone who will be gentle and loving and honest and will give you an appraisal of what they feel God is saying to them about your life. Talk with someone. You know, if we are really to do business around these issues that come out of this small book with a huge message, we need to take an honest look in the mirror of his word, get wise counsel. We need to accept the responsibility for our own lives, no more self-deception, no more trying to delude ourselves and being an, having an honest look at our lives. Lord, why am I where I am in my situation? Paul promises that when we start to do good, in due time, we will reap the reward. There is a turnabout that can happen. There is a turnaround that God can bring into our lives. <laughs> Musicians, please, come and join me. The lessons of Obadiah running from pride and the principles of sowing and reaping will bless us Hear this, they will either bless us or they will catch up with us in due time. So it begs the question, does God really love us? And the answer is, of course he loves us. And that's why he has given us such insights and such passages to read and to learn from. Does God have compassion on us? Does his heart break when we are suffering? Absolutely. Does he cry with us? Yes, he does. Can we come to God and say, I am in so much pain and he will console us, and he will say, I know, I am so sorry, and I love you. He will do all those things, but he also says, children, I will not be mocked. If I allow you to mock me, the whole thing starts to break apart, the ship starts to sink, the bridge begins to fall. I love you too much to let those things happen to you, but remember the good news. Just as we have been damaged, and hurt because of our own irresponsibility. In the same way, if we come to him and we allow him to turn around and we, as it were, sow a different seed, if we have a different leaning of our hearts, he will flood in like a tide and he will bring those changes that he so wishes to desire. Obadiah is an incredibly challenging book, a small, small book, but an incredibly powerful message. Thank you. for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, 
Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.